my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week a climate change special. After a heat dome in gulf parts of Canada and the United States, there can be little doubt that a climate crisis is upon us. That might seem counterintuitive, I know, after a so far soggy summer in the UK. But make no mistake, extreme weather events are heading our way too. We'll be getting a first-hand account from a climate change expert in the sweltering state of Washington. We don't usually know there's a problem until we start counting bodies. In this case, we have a huge amount of environmental information. And it's now up to us to use that, to be prepared for the future we know is going to be very different from today. So what can we do in Britain? We'll be speaking to former Labour MP Alan Simpson, who advised John McDonnell on climate policy. He says changing how we measure our harmful impact on the planet would be a start. The more we make people ill, the more the cost of dealing with that illness counts as GDP. It counts as growth. Pollution counts as growth. Environmental damage counts as growth. The fact that we fail to maintain flood defences counts as growth because of the expenditure that is incurred when you try to reclaim and repair. Well, in most people's reality check audit, they'd much prefer not to be flooded in the first place, not be made ill, not to have to call on the NHS. All that coming up shortly. First, a reminder to check out our brilliant news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, where, as well as some of the finest investigative journalism and topical comment in the British media today, you'll also find details of how to subscribe to the monthly Byline Times newspaper, which funds this podcast. It's a snip at £36 a year and ensures that we can provide a real alternative to Murdoch and the Mail. Find out more at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, later this year, Britain will host COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. And although Boris Johnson's government has committed to reducing CO2 emissions by 78% by 2035 compared to 1990 levels, that lofty ambition isn't being matched by action. It's not just me saying that either. The chair of the UK's Independent Climate Change Committee, Lord Debon, commented last month, the policy is just not there. It's very clear we need to step up very rapidly. Yet ministers are still committed to the expansion of Heathrow Airport and a roads programme with a budget of £27 billion that dwarfs the £1 billion allocated to the Net Zero Innovation Fund. Climate change isn't waiting for Boris Johnson and other world leaders to get their act together, though. In the Pacific Northwest region of the United States and Canada, hundreds of people are reported to have died as a result of the recent heat dome, which has seen temperatures soar. Christy Eby, a professor at the Centre for Health and Global Environment at the University of Washington in Seattle, has been living through the heat wave. The temperatures were very extreme. Seattle broke its all-time temperature high by almost five degrees C. Usually regions break temperature records by tenths of degrees. This is the highest recorded increase in temperature of any city in the United States. How was it for you during the heat wave? Just give me a sense of what it was like to, to live through that. It's just hard to imagine the heat 
because our weather is not that different from yours. And our normal highs this time of year are 25C. And our highest temperature was about 42 and a half C, which are temperatures you can see in the desert Southwest. There's other parts of the world you can see those temperatures. You don't expect them outside your front door. And having a community in my particular city, less than 50% of residences have air conditioning. So talking with family and friends, making sure everybody's got access to a place to keep their core body temperature cooled down, making sure that we're trying to protect as many people as we can. Vulnerable groups include adults over the age of 65, but they also include groups like the homeless. And we have a very large homeless population here. And I suppose we can't be 100% sure that climate change is responsible for that, but is that the working assumption? A group of researchers just published a paper taking a look at the extent to which climate change affected the heat wave that hit North America and concluded that the heat wave was almost impossible without climate change. And that publication is out. There is a scientific paper that has been submitted with those conclusions. So politicians are talking about targets in five, 10, 15 years time to combat climate change. What you're saying is it's here now. Climate change is here now. We've known for some time that climate change is increasing the frequency, intensity and duration of heat waves. So we know that climate change is already having a fingerprint, put a thumb on the scale, whatever analogy you'd like to use, making heat waves more frequent and more intense. And so the question is not if climate change is affecting heat waves, but how much is it affecting heat waves? And this was particularly extreme. It's not the only heat wave that's been particularly extreme in the last few years. So what do politicians need to do next then? We have various well-meaning targets about the reduction in CO2. Whether or not those targets will be met is another question, but is that enough? There's two main policies that we need to follow. One, as you highlight, is mitigation, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, which we need to do immediately, urgently, as rapidly as possible. We also need to undertake what we call adaptation. We need to prepare for the future that's arriving now. Our future is going to be hotter. What's particularly important as well in the Pacific Northwest is with the higher temperatures, we're also going to be more humid. And we are unprepared, as unfortunately was demonstrated by this heat wave. Although to be fair to the authorities, it'd be hard to prepare for something so far out of the range of historic experience. But hundreds of cities around the world have heat action plans, including heat wave early warning systems. And we know that those systems can save lives. We know that changing our built environment can make cities cooler make people more comfortable even as the temperatures continue to rise. So there's a long list of things that need to be done while we're also reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. I'll come to adaptation in more detail in a moment, but how radical do we need to be about the reduction in CO2? What practical things can we do and what do we need to do urgently to deal with this crisis? All of us have a role to play. The conclusion of an intergovernmental panel on climate change report in 2018 was every action matters. Everything from thinking about if you have a car that's powered by petrol, 
group your errands. So you use less petrol when you go out and do your errands. As a parent, how many times do we all tell our children to turn out the lights? Because turning on the lights keeps drawing power. When you use your computer, if you're not using it, put it to sleep. I know how long it takes, how annoying it can be to fire up your computer, but all appliances, when you look at them collectively, use about a third of all of the greenhouse gases they're going to use, a third of the energy they're going to use in standby mode. So thinking about how to be more energy efficient in our own lives does really make a difference. Collectively, there's lots of changes we need to make. We need to have some way to put an incentive for industry to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Although many companies are already significantly reducing their emissions. All the major auto manufacturers have said, by some date, we'll no longer have an internal combustion engine. So we're seeing this shift. We need to promote the shift, engage with the shift and help move it forward. You talked about adaptation. That assumes that climate change will continue, that the changes in the weather that it provokes will not go away anytime soon. What can we do then practically to adapt for that? You're right. There's something called the climate change commitment that as greenhouse gases are added to the atmosphere, it takes a while for them to come to equilibrium. And so we do have a commitment in the atmosphere of how much greenhouse gases we've already put up there. The more we put up, the longer the commitment. And anything that reduces our emissions, increases our energy efficiency, is going to really help with keeping those emissions down, which will affect our own individual future. In the meantime, I personally work on health issues. There's a long list of health outcomes that can be affected by weather and climate, making sure that our departments, our ministries of health are prepared for these shifts. Shifts, for example, in the range of diseases such as dengue fever, making sure they're prepared, we've got the right surveillance programs in place, that we put into place the things we're going to need for the future. And this is one of the reasons why I have some optimism, is when you look at environmental issues that the health sector has dealt with historically, we don't usually know there's a problem until we start counting bodies. In this case, we have a huge amount of environmental information. And it's now up to us to use that, to be prepared for the future we know is going to be very different from today. In the UK, we haven't had the extreme heat that you have had. I'm speaking to you in the middle of what has so far been a pretty damp summer. And there will be people, perhaps jokingly, who say, oh, well, yeah, bring on bring on the heat wave. You know, they, they wouldn't mind a, a bit of summer warmth. But we're not talking about a, a few sunny days here. No, we're not. We're seeing much longer summers than when we were growing up. The summers are hotter. More heat waves are in those summers. We know from heat waves in 2003 in the UK, across Europe, that these heat waves can cause very large numbers of deaths. That 2003 heat waves caused about 70,000 excess deaths. Those deaths are almost all preventable. And so we do need to take action so that people know what they need to do when it's hot. Communities are prepared. They've got cooling centers where people can go to. They've got ways to get to the cooling center. That there has been a thoughtful and detailed approach to how to handle these events as they occur. So a cooling center is what? Some kind of community facility where people can go and be kept cool? 
They're facilities that are set up. They can be in schools, libraries, shopping malls. There's a variety of places people set up cooling centers. And it's where there's access typically to air conditioning. So and do you people, have those in the Pacific Northwest now? Our city set them up. All the major cities in the Pacific Northwest set them up. There's other cities that have been setting them up for years. They've got a lot more practice in doing it. Ours was not as well prepared, but then we didn't expect a heat wave that was so expensive. When coronavirus hit the UK, and I suspect this is true of the US as well, although there had been some kind of emergency planning in the years before, when that moment of emergency hit, we were not prepared. There is a risk, clearly, that with climate change, we can see the warning signs, and yet we may not be prepared in that event either. That is always a possibility. There has been a lot more warning about climate change and what it can do. I work in public health. We've always talked about the possibility of pandemics, but those are one in 100 year events based on an N of two. But with climate change, we're seeing so many more extreme events. Everyone's being affected in some way. And there is a lot of incentive for people individually and collectively to take action to make sure that we're going to be comfortable in a much warmer climate. Professor Christy Eby in Seattle. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Let's hear now from Alan Simpson, who is dedicating his energies these days to challenging climate change and building a sustainable future after serving for 18 years as Labour MP for Nottingham South. Alan, who describes himself as a recovering politician and lapsed economist, was once environmental advisor to John McDonnell during his time as Shadow Chancellor. No one can doubt Alan Simpson's commitment to the cause. He lives in his own eco-house after converting a derelict lace mill in the centre of Nottingham. How seriously does he regard the climate emergency? It is the biggest existential challenge we have ever faced. When I was advisor to the Shadow Chancellor, when we were asked to look at reforming the Treasury, I was running a working group where we brought in climate physicists and they gave the first two sessions that, to his credit, John McDonnell came and sat in on. And at the end of the second one, we were walking out and John said, look, it's clear, isn't it? Politicians aren't in the driving seat anymore. Physics is in the driving seat. The rest of us have just got to hear the message and wake up before it's too late. And he was right. And now I heard on the BBC the other day, Alak Sharma saying, what we've got to do within this decade is cut our carbon emissions in half. That means cutting them by 10% every year through this decade. And this is a really big ask. It's not impossible to do, but it does require us to think about things in a completely different way. And that is both scary and really, really exciting. And the Boris Johnson government has committed to doubling the price of plastic bags. It says it wants to reduce waste. It's committed to significant tree planting. 
as well. But your argument is that there are other parts of Boris Johnson's agenda that militate against combating climate change. Yes, my frustration with both the governments and the opposition is that they struggle to get beyond decent but half-thought-through measures. So reducing waste is really important. We recycle less than, I think, 17 or 18% of our current plastic waste. Well, if you want a model of how to tackle this, it isn't in terms of taxing plastic bags. Follow what the Norwegians did in 2005, and they announced to their plastics industry that they were going to introduce a pretty swinging tax on all plastic bottles. And the industry went, oh, no, you can't do that. And they said, yeah, apart from the ones that genuinely can be recycled. So the industry paused and they went away and they came back with three forms of plastic that could be recycled. And the government then said, okay, so we'll allow you to be completely exempt from that tax on recyclable bottles that are actually recycled. So you don't pay tax if over 90% of the bottles are recycled. So what they did, all of those bottles are barcoded. You and me would pay 10 pence or 25 pence deposit on a bottle when we bought it at the shop. They have deposit return schemes like vending machines on most street corners and you put them in, the machine reads the coding and you get a voucher for the value of the bottles that you've returned. Those vouchers can be cashed in in any and every shop. So shopkeepers love it, the public love it. And since it was introduced, 97% of their plastic bottles are recycled. So it works phenomenally well. But you've got to have a carrot and stick framework where people can see that if they behave badly, they'll get clobbered. If they behave well, they benefit. We never think things through properly. That's my big criticism. And we have to do this on every aspect of how we see our economy. Yeah, because although that is a lovely story and it's a practical example of what we can do to reduce waste, nearly eliminate it in the case of Norway's plastic bottles, what you're talking about is a bigger more systemic change that is needed and you've pointed out that at the same time as the government is pursuing free trade deals with countries around the world and we're hung up on the performance of our GDP, our gross domestic product, these are things that we need to challenge, these are things that need to change. Absolutely and this is heartbreaking because it shows a political mentality that is still tied to the past, that big trade deals aren't going to be a characteristic of a secure future. There will be, within the next five years, the introduction of carbon border taxation, where you pay a tax on the carbon footprint of goods that you've shipped in from halfway around the planet. And this will stop us chasing low pay and poor standards into other countries in the belief that somehow, economically, that's a good idea. Over half of our food produce, and equally half of our food produce carbon footprint of that, 
is incurred on other people's lands. Then the transport of the goods long distance adds in, whether it's aviation or shipping, a massive component of entirely avoidable carbon footprints. And at the moment, there is no means of taxing that carbon footprint. Effectively, the item costs whatever it costs. It may be made by people working in a sweatshop in some far-off country or then be put on a, a boat and brought to the UK where a consumer will just, with a couple of clicks of their computer mouse, order the goods that they want. But yeah. you're saying that will have to change. And whether Britain likes it or not, other countries, the EU, for example, are already talking about this, some kind of carbon tax will be introduced so we won't be able to trade no. on that basis in future. Absolutely not. Once we realise that, then we'll begin to explore the huge benefits. So, for instance, Sweden has already recognised that the idea of end-of-life recycling responsibilities actually is a bit of a nonsense if you're having to ship things back halfway around the world with a massive carbon footprint in doing so. So what they've done is that they've introduced a primary purchase tax, a big hike in primary purchase tax, but completely took VAT off repairs. So what they're saying is let's promote the local skills that allow you to extend product life and get things repaired and keeping money in circulation. It just takes me back to what my granddad said when I told him I was studying economics. He said, it seems to me that economics is just about a money go round, isn't it? You know, you get a ride on something, it depends on whether you get the horse and carriage or just a little bicycle. Uh, And what you've got to watch out for is how much the fella in the middle is putting in his pocket. Well, actually... (laughs) The the nice thing about this is that the money-go-round idea really works in terms of accountability as well. Because if you get something repaired and it's around the corner and it isn't done properly, you take it back. That's what we did as kids. And I would say to pensioners groups or whatever, if we increased their income or their partners or their kids in local factories, I'd say to them, how many of you got offshore bank accounts? I mean, none of them did. They earned their money locally they spent it locally they kept other people in work locally so the money go round works this was the common safety net that we were building up for ourselves and in which goods were able to be repaired and people were able to be held to account now this is happening all around the place with some fantastic examples. I'm just intrigued, you know more about this as an economist than I do, but this kind of recalibration then of how we measure how well we're doing, because conventionally GDP, which is the sum total of all the goods and services sold in a country, is the measure of whether we're doing well economically. But as you point out, GDP may include dealing with the pollution that is caused by a particular process. But the pollution, although it will, in that sense, be registered as a good, because it's adding to your GDP, it's not a good because it's hurting people. Absolutely. (laughs) So the more we make people ill, the more the cost of dealing with that illness counts as GDP. counts as growth. Pollution counts as growth. Environmental damage counts as growth. The fact that we fail to maintain flood defences counts as growth because of the expenditure that is incurred when you try to reclaim and repair. Well, in most people's reality check audit, they'd much prefer 
not to be flooded in the first place, not be made ill, not to have to call on the NHS. But that's where we've got to move the economic goalposts to define an economics that makes us feel more secure. Where we are now, I think most people have never felt more insecure in their lives and more fearful of the prospects of insecurity for their children and grandchildren. There will be geopolitical consequences of all this, won't there? If, for example, we adopted a carbon tax, there may be countries around the world that rely on trading overseas, such as China, such as the UK itself, that will feel harm from that and might well take umbrage, may even, who knows, take some kind of military action to ensure that things stay as they are. They will. People will be upset. But one of the benchmarks for me about why we need to do it is if you look at the things that people are upset about, if they look at China and the treatments of the communities being shipped off to concentration camps, the question is, why don't we take action against that? It's the sort of stuff that ought to be brought before criminal tribunals. Well, we don't because our trade links are too dependent on China. Putin has people assassinated. Why don't we take action then? Well, you know, we depend on a gas line. There are too many reasons where real moral judgments that we'd want to make get compromised for fear of damaging trade dependencies. So becoming more self-reliant is no bad thing. The second part of that equation is, well, what do we do about the developing world and the expectations that the poor have of living differently. My answer to that is twofold. First is that we have to give the technologies that will allow them to improve their own lives before ours. I'm conscious that we import green beans from Kenya, for example, when Kenya can't afford to feed its own people. It's crazy to have a situation where the poor are made poorer because they have to feed the rich first when we could actually be feeding ourselves more productively and sustainably than we have ever done. Although, if you look at the figures for the Second World War, we were producing six times as much food per acre from within our towns and cities than from the countryside. Part of that was because you couldn't get labour out into the countryside, but vacant plots of land were latched onto and cultivated in towns and cities. That's where allotments were developed. And so we did it. And it's actually happening now in some really creative ways. In Montreal, they have winters of minus 30 degrees, so this is not messing about. You've got an organisation called Lufa Farms that has taken over the rooftops of factory buildings and they put greenhouses on the rooftops. They take the heated stale air from within the factory to keep the greenhouses warm. I use hydroponics to grow food on these rooftop greenhouses. And currently, they're producing 20 to 25,000 trolleys of food per week for families in Montreal. And you have lots of people in the city becoming involved in all year round food cultivation. In Paris, the mayor Anne Hidalgo is taking out 140,000 car parking spaces to give pedestrians and cyclists and nature priority in a living, breathing city. Well, some of the car parks, the tiers of the car parks, are already being converted to uh, food production. So they are growing food produce 
within the spaces previously occupied only by parked vehicles. So all of this is doable in ways that replicate what across Europe in the Italian and French slow food, slow towns movement people have done for decades. And when I'm taking people to look at those movements, one of the things that the locals all say is, we go into the shop and we ask, where was this grown and how was it grown? And they'll tell you the name of the farmer. The presumption about food quality and food accountability is part of our everyday culture. When I hear these ideas, clearly they're fascinating and there's some great inventive thinking going on in different parts of the world. People have said that one reason that Labour have struggled in the traditional working class, so-called red wall towns, is because of globalisation. People are left behind because, for example, globalisation may take their job several thousand miles away where it can be done by somebody working much more cheaply. Your ideas are a challenge to globalisation, but those same working class people in those impoverished traditional towns are used to buying stuff, things, consumer products cheaply from all over the world. So it may be that there is a gain to those people in challenging globalisation. It may be able to present that to them as a loss as well, though, because stuff will get more expensive, harder to obtain. That is the risk. But a more useful starting point is you go back to Henry Ford and he was asked how much he'd charge for the first Model T cars. And he said, the price will be low enough for the people who work for me to buy them. There's no point in producing cars that people can't afford to buy. So the starting point was that people need to be in work and earning wages that allow them to be effective consumers of the goods that they produce. And that's the challenge for labour. It's understandable where in communities that have seen jobs disappear that they are fearful of signing up to something that might make even today's residual jobs disappear too. So you've got to offer guarantees of more secure and fulfilling jobs in the future. That has to be the guarantee that goes with this. And it's possible to do that. It's really quite straightforward but you have to say we're making this shift is I think we need to show the example of how other countries are already doing this I, again I've taken people around uh, FE colleges in Germany full of kids like our own kids who are just buzzing with excitement and playing around with the smart renewable energy technologies that they're then fitting into people's homes And when you talk to those kids, the fact that they see themselves as being part of the answer rather than being part of the problem. Now, when Jeremy Corbyn was first leader, I think his first conference speech, he talked about creating green new jobs. The party did a vox pop around some of the marginal seats. One of them was in Mansfield, and we actually had recordings of people being stopped in the streets. There were a couple of miners, and they asked what they thought of Corbyn's speech. Uh, and one said to said, oh, we're great, I like that. Green new jobs, fantastic. We'll have them here in Mansfield. You tell that Mr. Corbyn, send him here, but starting next week, 
we'll have them here and any surplus ones, we'll pass them across to neighbours. You know, his mate was laughing and the interviewer was laughing. This miner said, I've been a miner, I don't want to go back down the pits. I don't want my lads to go down the pits, but I want them to have work. I want them to have decent work. And talking of miners, you've identified something that could be done with the thousands of disused mines in this country. <laughs> this, this is heartbreaking. It's inspiring and heartbreaking because in the Netherlands this time, there's a town called Heerlen, and they've already tapped into their disused mine shafts from the former coal mines. Now, those mine shafts are full of water, and that water is blooming hot, and it's permanently hot. So what they do is they have drilled down, they've sunk pipes in there, transfer the heat into the water in the pipes, they're pumped back up. At the surface level, they're attached to heat exchangers, which is basically just like your fridge in reverse, so that they multiply the heat, and they are providing heat for the whole town on district heating schemes. Now, apply that to the UK. We've got 25,000 disused mine shafts around the country. It's estimated that one in four of the population live within supply distance of those mine shafts. And digging and kitting up the renewable heat systems, putting the piping in, fitting it out to people's homes, and putting in the heat exchanges that deliver the heat boost. That's a lot of fitters, engineers, supply line skills, all of which create local jobs. So it's jobs, it's cheap heating, it's there to be done. What clearly for And us- it's zero carbon. Zero carbon. So if you want to make a break from the unsustainable energy systems of the past into the clean systems of the present, here it is staring you in the face. And yet Boris Johnson's agenda seems, as well as talking a good game on climate change, seems to involve prestige, flagship projects, HS2, or roads building and improvements programmes, which would seem to militate against improving your CO2 performance. Where is the leadership either in the Conservative Party or in the Labour Party, that will seize on these kind of initiatives and say, this is where the country needs to be heading? The answer for me is that I can't find it currently within either of the main political parties. There are people who are members of both of those parties who do get it, but their voices are still coming from the margins. There are large swathes of communities around the country where younger people and their grandparents genuinely get both the possibilities and the urgency. And they're crying out for leadership beyond slogans and gimmicks. But it's as though the mainstream political parties are currently struggling to engage with a really visionary approach to dealing with the practicalities of delivering that sort of transformation. One of the obstacles is for us to acknowledge that Britain is probably the most centrally governed country anywhere in Western Europe. Other countries have developed much more devolved systems of governance where lines of accountability are short. It doesn't guarantee that mistakes aren't made, 
but you know where to hold people to account and you know how to hold them to account. And, you know, as one of my constituents said to me, you know, when I was an MP, we had a lovely conversation, it was quite a robust one. I said, look, you don't have to be pretending you're voting for me. Well, I'm fine, you know, we've got this relationship, it's straightforward. And he said, no, you don't understand, do you? I, I do vote for you. And he said, the, the trouble is, Mr. Simpson, you, you're a bugger, but you're my bugger, and I know where to find you. And there is something really profoundly important about being able to say that, to find where the people are who are responsible for making the decisions and for doing the repairs and maintaining the, keeping the lights on, and to, so that those whole frameworks of security, food supply, water supply, work and sustainable economics, all of those are strengthened if we claim the courage to give localities the freedom to operate that exists elsewhere in Europe, along with the climate mandate that says everything that you do now has to fit in with this annual 10% cut in your carbon budget, because anything that doesn't do that is just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And uh, I'm not in any way seeking to distance myself from the urgent need to combat CO2. But even if you look at it from a purely economic point of view, I grew up in a, a council house in Birmingham and I know how hard-pressed my parents were and were worried about bills coming in. And it struck me for years, even before people became really conscious of climate emergency, that if you could fit solar panels and better insulation to the kind of house that I grew up in, that would have saved my mum and dad an awful lot of heartache, an awful lot of worry about the gas or the electric bill because it would have been cheaper to live in that house. And I struggle to understand why no political party has said, as of this date, building standards will, from here on in, insist on all new buildings having solar panels to a decent quality and having insulation to a certain quality. Why has nobody amongst the mainstream political parties said that and seized that initiative? Probably my one big contribution in Parliament was that I managed to get through the, what were called the feed-in tariff amendments to the Energy Act 2008. And that brought in payments for people to put solar panels on their roofs. And change when there was a change of government in 2010. So we never replicated what the Germans had done, which is to have it on a reducing uh, scale that was predictable and take it into mainstream taxation rather than onto general energy bills. And we never allowed people to share and sell into their local energy systems. This was a classic example of Britain being forced, I mean, it was massive lobbying to stop my amendment getting through. I remember getting a complete set of rollickings from my own whips office in the Labour Party, saying I was going to ruin everything, ruin everything. But we put together a cross-party revolt, enough Labour backbenchers and the Conservatives and the Lib Dems and the Green, and we got it through. And the, the point about it was, it was the big energy companies who were desperate to kick that into touch. And we've got to overcome exactly the same problems today. There's no technology barriers to making this shift. It's the big corporate interests 
dominating the shape of the economy. And that ties in to your earlier question about, well, what about the developing world? We've just seen chancellors in the G7 patented on the back on a new framework for global corporate taxes. But when Amazon slips through the net completely and will pay no additional tax, you know it's not much of a net. And it's those people, the super rich, have become massively enriched during the COVID pandemic. The wealth is there and we have to, whichever party it is, has to redistribute from those who are now sitting on corporate fortunes and those resources need to be tapped into to provide the investment in infrastructures that will allow localities to live more sustainably. And as part of those vested interests, we're talking about perhaps the building companies, the developers who contribute hundreds of millions of pounds in donations to the Conservative Party's coffers. Absolutely. And we're in this classic case now in the UK, where every locality around the country is facing pressure from developers to give approvals for buildings to go up before there's an increase in the building standards regulations. And most local authorities will tell you, we don't have the powers to say no. At a time when the Climate Change Committee says, you know, we've built half a million homes that are not fit for the future in the last five years. This is scandalous. Now, again, other countries have been doing things radically differently. In Denmark, you can't get a planning application even looked at for any building that is connected to the gas grid. But they announced that change to the construction sector. They said, this is what we're going to do. The construction sector said, well, hey, we can't do that. No, 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 you, you've got to be connected. And the government said, well, don't worry if you can't do it. We'll go and ask the Germans. <laughs> so the Danes said, well, just give us a couple of months. They came back in a couple of months. Said, well, actually, we worked out we can do it this way. We can do it. So if you're forced, then innovation comes charging through the door. And in Germany, equivalent is... They said, simplify the process. So first of all, you make a statutory requirement that you can only get access to low-cost finance, 0% or 1% over 15 years. You can have that if the property meets passive house or near-passive house standards. If it's equipped... Zero emissions. Yeah, if it's equipped with solar panels... do the generation or heat pumps to do the, the heating. So it doesn't have to be the, the heavy hand of the law then. It can be incentivised, encouraging people, you'll get better rates of interest if you do this, if, yep. if you behave in this way. And bear in mind, taking people to look at this, the one of the things I, I point out is that it doesn't matter where you go around Germany, it doesn't matter whether the locality is governed by the SPD or the, the CDU, left or right, no particular difference. They're all committed to the principle. They have different practical arrangements that suit them best, but they all understand that the name of the game is to deliver low-carbon security. Yeah, it's the same planet. It's the same climate crisis, whether you're blue, red or whatever. One thing that strikes me about this whole debate is that instead of dragging its heels, if Britain chose to be an innovator, belatedly chose to be an innovator, if that's not a, a contradiction in terms, there are gains to be made because the expertise that we develop here could then be exported. The risk is that when we finally catch up with this agenda, we'll be importing the skills 
the designs, the brainwork of other countries. Yes, and we're failing to tap in to the incredible ingenuity of generations of young people coming through who are hungry to be part of the answer. And we're parking them in spaces that they feel legitimately are going nowhere. And, you know, that is a tragic waste of human resources as well as ecological ones. And we don't need to be throwing our human resources, our kids, our grandchildren, away as cheaply as we are doing. One final thought. You've said that we can't leave this to the politicians. That method has demonstrably failed. And I think you said you'd quit politics yourself in order to have more of a real effect on the world. That it's going to need disruptors. It's going to need agitators. It's going to need people who are willing to take risks and put themselves out there to force this change through. Yes. In a way, that's the work that I try to do now. I work with various localities looking at how to be constructive disruptors and giving people the courage to just even think a few steps beyond where they are now. One classic example is in this limited power that local authorities have to turn down planning applications. Lots of councillors say, we'd love to, but we just, we can't, we'd be taken to appeal, the ruling would go against us, we'd meet the costs, it would be a disaster. And I say to them, okay, but at least do two things. Insist on doing a carbon audit of every single major planning application that comes your way. We've got universities full of people who can do fantastic carbon auditing for you. And the second is that if, despite that, you don't have the power to turn it down, come up with a resolution in your committee in which you're on record as saying, this is a wretched proposal put forward by people who should be imprisoned rather than rewarded, but we don't have the power to say no. But this carries a mark of shame. I think the next step will be to go to the city of London and all those who finance some of these wretched, unsustainable developments and say to them, do us a favour, don't provide the finance. Go and spoil someone else's city. This is going to be a legacy that will cost us a fortune to put right within the next decade. So do us a favour, don't buy into it. If the city starts to realise, as some parts of the banking and finance sectors are beginning to do, that they too will be held to carbon account, then pretty quickly they will start to say to today's fly-by-night developers, actually we're not financing anything that is going to be a millstone around our necks. Because in reality, all the pension funds are in this for the long term. Your and my, or your mum and dad's pension schemes, were long-term. They weren't overnight speculative flutters. And I think once that part of the financial economy starts to say, no, we're not buying in to a race for the precipice. We're just going to stay where we are. All of a sudden, you'll see a game change in the right of citizens to expect more sustainable developments that generate their own energy, that have green put back into the process that use renewable resources rather than non-renewable ones and which create real local sustainable economies where all our kids have a future and a place.
Words of hope and inspiration there from Alan Simpson. I'm Adrian Goldberg and you've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. You can read more like this in the Byline Times newspaper, so don't forget to subscribe. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. See you next time.